The following podcast includes explicit language. If that's a problem, batten down the hatches. If it's not, welcome. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of August 28th, 2023. On this week's show, we'll look back at the World Track and Field Championships, where Shakari Richardson roared back, and Noah Lyles sprinted to three gold medals. We'll also review the new documentary BS High about the story behind Bishop Sycamore, the fake high school that somehow played football on ESPN. And finally, journalist Simra Hunter will join us to assess the latest from Spain, where the Women's World Cup victors have banded together to take down Federation President Luis Rubiales and to try to change the country's soccer culture. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. And hey, when you know it, our new season, One Year 1955, is launching this Friday. No, wait, this Thursday. I'm going to get this right. <laughs> this Thursday, August 31st. I'm only the host of the show. No big deal. Uh, not in D.C. this week. Stefan Fatsis, he's the author of the book's Word Freak, a few seconds of panic and wild and outside. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. And not in California. It's Joel Anderson. He's the host of the acclaimed eighth season of Slow Burn, Becoming Justice Thomas. Hello, Joel. Hey, that's old news. Uh, it's one year season time now. So we don't have to talk about Clarence Thomas, both you and Stefan. Great job hyping up the season, but it's it's one year time. And uh, as somebody who had an opportunity to get a sneak preview of the first episode, let me say you all absolutely need to check it out. It's great. But also that I hate Josh because it was a really good story that I wish that I had thought of or had opportunity to do. But, uh, you know, I mean, you know, it's just like that. That's uh, to me, that's the highest compliment a journalist can give you. It's like, oh, I wish I'd been able to. I wish I thought of that. So, like. I mean, you all are going to be so happy with the opening episode. It's going to be great. You're going to you're going to hide it from us? No, no, no. Like, what's it about? What's that first episode first about? First of all, guys? let me just say to Joel that it's very funny that you complimented yourself for giving the highest compliment, which I appreciate. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I, 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 it's a compliment that I would want to hear. Okay, so maybe I didn't compliment you in the way that you needed. I, I loved it. I just spoke your love. Language. We haven't talked to each other in a while. We talked to each other like two days ago. So. It's about a group of black little leaguers in 1955 and their fight to try to integrate um, the sport. And the great thing about doing stories about kids from 1955 is that a lot of them are still around and available to tell the story. And these guys are are great, amazing memories, um, great storytellers. And it's a, a story about the civil rights movement told from a kind of unexpected angle. And since it's a sports story, we might um, bend your ear about it a little bit on this show, so we don't have to get into it uh, too much now. I want to say something. So I just think it's really important. I just spent, I've been spending some time with my family, uh, the, you know, the people down here in, in Houston. I've been here for a week um, looking after family. And hearing Black boomers talk about that time in their life and um, the experiences they had with, uh, you know, segregation, uh, racism, all this other stuff that went on in that time, like, it's so important. And, like, the people of that generation are not going to be with us very long. And so I think that what was really moving about Josh's story is I'm hearing these people. These are the probably the last people that experienced that particular America. And to hear them talk about it and to how, like, the disappointments from that time still linger with them, it's just really moving. And so I'm just really glad that Josh told that story. But also, like, it's just really important 
um, especially as like, you know, history classes are being changed and switched up all around the country right now. So like it does a really important uh, job in, in, uh, in, in talking about these men and their experiences. So, you know, kudos to you, Josh. It was just really, I, I'm, I was just really moved about it, particularly in this moment. So thank you for telling that story. Yeah. Thank you, Joel. Thank you so much. I do want to say that if you're a Slate Plus member, you can get the first three episodes of one year right away this Thursday. Um, so just yet another reason to sign up. You also get to hear the following bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week on this show. We're going to talk about the 49ers decision to trade quarterback Trey Lance to the Cowboys just two years after they traded three first round picks to draft him. Um, who's to blame here? If anyone, we will discuss and hear that discussion. You have to be a Slate Plus member. You get that bonus segment. You get three episodes of one year right away uh, without having to wait. Uh, you get ad-free shows. You get to support us. It's all good stuff. Slate.com slash hangup plus. Slate.com slash hangup plus to sign up. I wanted to say a quick hello to our listeners on Stitcher. As you may have heard, the Stitcher app is going away forever on August 29th. But fear not, you'll still be able to find us. Listen and subscribe to Hang Up and Listen on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Amazon Music, or anywhere else you find podcasts. And thanks so much for being a loyal listener. Two years ago, Shakari Richardson won the 100 meters at the U.S. Olympic trials, setting her up to go to the Tokyo Olympics. But after that race, she tested positive for cannabis and, in an extraordinarily controversial decision, was forced to miss the Games. Last year, Richardson didn't even make the finals in the 100 or the 200 at the U.S. trials. But this year, the 23-year-old from Dallas and LSU, she's been on the upswing. And at the track and field championships in Hungary last week, she got her first chance ever to compete on a big global stage. And, well, here's NBC's Lee Diffie on the call of the women's 100-meter final. Women's 100 world final. The Jamaicans get out well. It's Sharika Jackson, Shelly You'll notice that Shakari Richardson was the fourth athlete mentioned there in a 10.65 second race. She was out on the far outside in lane nine. And so she kind of uh, came out of nowhere. Um, and Joel, it was an amazing world championships overall for the U.S. 12 golds and 29 medals overall. No other country had more than four golds or 12 overall medals. But the headliners were um, Noah Lyles, who we'll get to in a bit, and Shakari, who won that gold, won gold in 4 by 100 took bronze in the 200. What can you say about her performance and also her story? So Shakari Richardson's problems, to the extent that they're real problems, have almost never been about her ability or what she could do on the track. Um, and what we saw last week is maybe what we would have seen in 2021. You know, she didn't miss the Olympics because of a bad performance or even like a bad start or a stumble. She was running some of the best times in the world in the build-up to the games, and she just simply tested positive for cannabis, as you mentioned. So when Shakari Richardson returned to action later in that Olympic season, after everyone else had peaked and had been running through the Olympic Games, she was understandably not prepared or ready to keep up with everyone. She'd had this big moment taken away from her. Her biological mother had died. Um, and she was particularly ill-suited for that kind of national spotlight, like it, it's particularly at that age. She was grieving and she'll, she realized she would never get to capitalize on that moment in quite that way again. But now, on the other hand, she has this redemption story that everybody can latch on to. And she's been the world's best sprinter, 
much of the season. She was building to this moment, and it was just a question of whether or not she'd actually do it. And to win the 100 in the way that she did against her nemeses, uh, Shelly Ann Fraser-Price and Sharika Jackson, that really made it special. But to do it, and you mentioned that you heard her name come up for, fourth um, in, the, in, in the replay of that 100 meter, to do it from lane nine, um, I don't know how people who you know run track before or whatever, it is so hard to get a sense of yourself from that far out on the, in, on the track because you're not in the center of the action. You can't really test. You can't look over and see or get a feel for where all the other sprinters are. You've just got to do it. And so for but her... Joel, so, how would you know that? You would have always been in the center because you were one of the fastest. Actually, uh, <laughs> at my 100-meter uh, state championship in high school, I ran and won from lane nine. Uh, and, wow. Wow. You are Shakari. Except for the Dallas part. Yeah, right, except for the Dallas part. We, we, don't, we definitely don't have that in common. But what happened is that I ran kind of a, a, a bootleg time in the qualifiers, like the semifinal. I was kind of dogging it because I had a nemesis. You don't want to get into it or anything like that. But anyway, to do it from that lane, like you, don't, you try not to do that intentionally, but sometimes it just happens. And for her to have done it, I mean, that just says, you know, she's on top of her game. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see where she goes from here because she's really, really young and she's really, really accomplished already. And I think that, you know, this generation of Jamaican sprinters are almost, you know, they're kind of, they're past their prime. So we may be looking at another five, six years of the reign of uh, Shakaria Richardson. And who would have thought that? Who thought we would have been saying that last year? She really like, went through a lot. A lot of it was self-inflicted after that uh, Olympic disqualification. Um, she did not seem to really know how to handle it. Um, she got into beefs on social media. Um, she beefed with Allison Felix at one point um, during the Olympics, tweeting, missing me yet, after Team USA was uh, temporarily disqualified in the mixed relay race. She liked an anti-Jamaican post on Twitter. She said some really sort of intemperate and selfish things. Um, I mean, Shakari Richardson has always positioned herself as someone who didn't care what the public thinks, which is great. She is a confident, extremely talented black athlete and good for her for being strong and decisive. But she struggled a lot. And the ability to come back here, I think, positions her now for a long, more successful career. It's not as if she has uh, dropped that, that veneer of ego. At the U.S. trial, she wore her signature orange wig and tossed it off right before the, the race started. Um, but I think that what we'll be looking to see is if she's able to sort of capitalize now on her success and, and maintain that going forward to the Olympics next year. Yeah, I mean, she has the kind of arrogance and confidence of a 100-meter champion. I mean... Every athlete, every elite, world-class, whatever you want to classify it as, athlete, has to have a certain level of ego and arrogance. But Joel, you can perhaps speak to this, not from personal experience, of course, <laughs> but there's something about a 100-meter runner where it's just like kind of to another level. And I, I think there was some resentment, not only in the kind of wider world, but within the sport itself, that she had that attitude without the accomplishments. And we'll get to this a little bit with right. Noah Lyles. I think there is a certain kind of fake it to make it aspect to this or like speak it into existence, manifest into the world. I, I'm going cliche after cliche here. But for her, with everything that she went through, with the fact that she's not the most polished 
person. I think she had to kind of take a lot back what she was giving out at, at a time when she was extremely vulnerable and hurting, but couldn't really project that to the world. And so it's great for her that she's been able to have this kind of star moment that seemed like she desperately wanted and was maybe going to get in 2021. But also, it's just kind of keep building and building and building. And, you know, sometimes what's good for the sport in terms of creating rivalries, maybe is like not <laughs> great for individuals in terms of their keeping them on an, on an even keel. But it's, you know, it seems like it worked out for her this time. And it's going to be fun to watch for the next few years. Well, Josh, think about, I mean, I don't know, maybe you feel this as an LSU fan. Um, but if you think about it, I, I remember when Lolo Jones um, was the favorite in the 110 meter hurdles in the Olympics a few years ago. And she clipped a hurdle, her final hurdle in the Olympics and fin in uh, did not finish on the medal stand that year. And so when she came back, and I'm trying to remember if it was 2016, I believe, when she came back and had an opportunity and they were like, oh, she's going to finally get a chance to, you know, redeem herself. And that was a big storyline in that Olympics. Now, she actually didn't do it, you know, didn't happen. Mm -hmm. But that is the sort of stuff that makes you a star. And so whereas, you know, Shakira Richardson... It would have been great if she had had opportunity to run to the Olympics and be a champion and experience all that other sort of stuff. But this just builds and makes her story that much more compelling. So when the Olympics come around in Paris next year, people will be tuning into her in a way that they haven't before. And luckily for her, she's a world champion now. She's five years, you know, she's several years more mature. So she'll have that. And again, I just can't, you know, uh, emphasize this enough. The Jamaican era is almost over. One person that did not run in the race against her this past week was Elaine Thompson-Hurrah, who ran the second fastest time of all time um, in, in the 100-meter dash. She didn't. She finished fifth in the 100 of the Jamaican National Trials and didn't run at the World Championships, even the relays. So, I mean, it just kind of goes to show that, like, this is a year-to-year -year thing, man. Like, the great ones... They can do it, sustain it over a number of time, and we'll find out if Shikari is that person. But it's a really, really hard uh, to build year after year and dominate people that are all, you know, I mean, so the sprint game is so dirty and so desperate. Like, to, to be at the top of it for multiple years, it takes a really, really special person. I think it'll be interesting, Josh, too, to see how Shakari Richardson is positioned in the media in the next X months before the Olympics. Is she sort of just redemption story? Will she be a sponsor? Will she be a face of NBC going into the games, um, given what happened the two years ago? Um, I think that's going to be, a, you know, an interesting storyline. I assume it's going to be the redemption arc, um, but you don't know. She is not you know, she has never been the most polished public presenter um, and whether sponsors and networks adopt her, um, I think will be a sort of reflection of how they treat athletes heading into an Olympics. Yeah. And she's owned that. I mean, she's talked in her post-race interviews about, I do this for the, the girls and women who look like me and talk like me. And then that sound a little like Angel Reese speaking of LSU, <laughs> by the way. I think it does. Yeah. And I mean, it gets into, yeah. it gets into pretty dicey territory, but you know, Sydney McLaughlin Lavroni, who was not at the World Championships due to injury, I think Sydney McLaughlin has talked about like her being criticized for like, oh, they, they say I only get the attention I get because I'm light skinned. And like we get into like really deep shit about mm -hmm. colorism and yeah. and things like that. But I, I think that Shakari Richardson was going to be the I mean, they already had filmed the promos for the Tokyo Games like that she was in before she got suspended. And so I, I think 
that in this case, because of the fact that she's American during an Olympic year, she's the 100-meter champion, and she has this redemption story. I don't know about the sponsors, but NBC is going to be eating that shit up and like all all in on it, no matter what. Yeah. Um, but Joel, I wanted to to switch to Noah Lyles here because, uh, I mean, for everything that Shakari Richardson did, I mean, this dude was the the star of the the games. Won the hundred, which he was not expected to do. Destroyed the field in the two hundred, which he was expected to do, and anchored in the four by one hundred. And he is a guy who is very clearly tactically trying to position himself for stardom, not just in track, but um, just celebrity in, in general. And the way he talks about it, it's funny. It's like he's saying, I'm going to, uh, like, I am the gift that I am giving to track. Like, track needs, and and he's not wrong. Like, track needs a new star. Track is suffering in terms of rating. So I'm going to, like, bring the, the razzmatazz. I'm going to, like, help bring some attention to the sport. Um, what do you make of the guy? I mean, it's hard to, it's impossible to argue with the talent, but kind of what do you think of him more broadly? So um, yesterday started making the rounds was Noah Lyles was a, 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 in a moment in an interview where, where he said something to the effect that, you know, what really hurts me, what hurts me most of all is NBA players get to call themselves world champions and they um, obviously they don't beat everybody in the world. And the funny thing about this is he's just got a lot of respect for the Euro. Yeah, League. exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he's a big Fenerbahce fan. And maybe we'll put a link to this on the show notes or whatever, but please go to the sports center account that runs that clip because like 80% of the NBA are in the mentions, <laughs> like hating on him and talking about him. And that's sort of what I've always thought about Noah Lyles. And I don't know how to explain this. I followed his career for a few years, and he's sort of grading in the way that he's a tryhard. Yeah, he's a tryhard. I was trying, so like, I, like there's like there, there's guys in sports, and these people are not all similar, but maybe you'll get what I'm saying. Like Adrian Broner as a boxer, Russell Wilson, Carl Anthony Towns. Like they're just so solicitous. They're so desire. They so desire media f- star uh, stardom, and it comes across as insincere. And I think that that's kind of Noah's problem. And also, I mean, so Noah Lyles wants to be famous. That is clear. And it's good. That would be good for track. That would be good for his bank account. But let me get... And he's very transparent yeah. about what he's doing. Yeah. It's not like he's trying to sneak it past us in any way. He's like, I want to be a GQ. I want to be blah, 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 blah. I want to do the Netflix doc. There's like two documentaries following him around. Absolutely. And it's really hard. I mean, here, so here are the guys that have doubled at the world championships prior to this. Okay. Maurice Green, Justin Gatlin, Tyson Gay, Usain Bolt. You don't, like, do you all know the, uh, the first three people that I named? Are you familiar with them in their careers? I mean, I am, but I don't, I don't okay, think yeah. most people, yeah. I don't most think most people are. People are. Yeah. The, most sprinters don't get to be famous. Like, no They're matter not how celebrities. They're not celebrities. Like, Usain Bolt is one of one. Like, he, not only was he great, but he was like, he's the best sprinter to ever exist. And he did it with such a flair and did it over three Olympics. Like anybody aspiring to be Usain Bolt, it's sort of a fool's errand. Um, but maybe Noah Lyles, you know, thinks that he can get his little corner of the, the, the sprint world and make a little money. So I don't know. I mean, I watched all of his races and every time they showed this clip of Noah Lyles racing in Jamaica and the great man coming over to kind of bless him. And like they had... I think for one of these documentaries, like they had it mic'd up and he was like, 
Usain Bolt is like, keep doing what you're doing. This the sport needs you. I mean, it felt forced, but mm-hmm. um, I that's the that's the tension here. Is like he's not wrong. Like NBC clearly wants and needs him. Um, the sport does need stuff to bring it attention, and he's succeeding in that regard. And he's extraordinarily talented. Right, right. I mean, it's just. The thing is, you can get popular, you can be great, but you can't make people like you, right? And I think that that's sort of his problem. I mean, I would it would be interesting to hear. So Carl Lewis had a moment, and I think he benefited from like the Cold War shit and the fact that he was just truly great. Like, I mean, he won I think four gold medals uh, at the '84 Olympics, and that was something that either we had never seen it before or only happened once before. I'm uh, people could correct me on that, but Carl Lewis. Given his accomplishment, given when he did it, you would think that he would be like a pantheon level American superstar. That's just not what. But he was. But he was, Joel. Well, I mean, okay. I mean, mean, like, do you? I guess the thing is, everybody is of their moment. But I still feel like a guy like. I mean, he hasn't sustained. He hasn't sustained. I think is what Joel is saying. Like, it's forty years. Yeah, but but like, he's not like Mary Lou Retton. Like, people know Mary Lou Retton more than Carl Lewis. Absolutely. That was 40 yeah. years ago, too. The I mean, Carl Lewis stars. was not, Carl Lewis was grading in a similar way. I think it's a good mm-hmm. comparison and, and not liked. And, you know, with an after the national anthem thing, I mean, come on, come on, <laughs> Stephen. <laughs> no, but he got his Wheaties boxes and he made a, a shit ton of money and became a worldwide track star. I mean, that is indisputable. Whether you like him or not, is a separate issue. And if Noah Lyles achieves that level of fame and fortune, he will be a happy man for his next 40 years. I don't think anyone would argue with that. I I think there's something to that, but I do think that that still falls short of what he wants, which is to be Usain Bolt. And only one person can be Usain Bolt, unfortunately. Well, yeah, you got to be 6'5 and like different physically and have the kind of charisma that Usain Bolt has. Right. Those are the unicorns in sports, right? No no offense to the 100-meter runners in our uh, panel, but for me, there's nothing like the 200. Um, I love the hmm. 200. There's a little bit more time to watch the race develop. And maybe it was because when we were growing up, Joel, we had Michael Johnson and just like watching him. Run Michael Johnson, one of my favorite 19. athletes of all time. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of, right, we haven't been mentioned as part of the Pantheon. <laughs> you know, his he got attention because he was like in the commentary booth when Bolt was like running those records and him like being kind of aghast. I mean, he's like literally being surpassed and forgotten and like, you know, exclaiming and celebrating it. But, you know, seeing him, seeing Michael Johnson run the turn, like just watching Noah Lyles run the 200, it's pretty awesome. And yeah. You know, the other athlete who you mentioned as part of the litany of washed up Jamaicans, Sharika Jackson, ran 21-4-1 in the 200, which is Unreal. getting closer than anyone has ever gotten to finally Unreal. erasing the Flojo records, the, the great Flojo <laughs> steroids records. Um, hey. Hey. <laughs> I, my friend uh, Chris wants to know, Joel, what's gonna, who's going to last longer? What's going to last longer? The Flojo records in the 100 or 200 or Vladimir Putin? (laughs) (laughs) I got to say, are we going to see are we going to see the Flojo records go down in Paris or ever? (laughs) This may just be wishful thinking, but Flojo will be with us forever, baby. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Up next, the documentary BS High on a high school that didn't exist 
and the football players that got caught up in a scam. You might remember Bishop Sycamore. It's the Ohio high school that was not actually an Ohio high school, but still managed to get its football team on ESPN and proceeded to get destroyed by powerhouse IMG Academy 58-0. to In the wake of that blowout, Bishop Sycamore became an internet laughingstock, and it was also investigated by the state as basically a huge scam that took advantage of a bunch of disadvantaged kids. The new HBO documentary, BS High, digs into what came before that IMG game and what happened after, with on-camera interviews with a bunch of players, and most memorably, with the founder and coach of Bishop Sycamore, Roy Johnson. Here's a clip of Johnson being questioned by one of the filmmakers. Do you think it was irresponsible to keep pushing the program forward even though you didn't have the money? Yes. Would you do it again? Yes. I'm Magneto. These are my mutants, and I'm fighting for them. Any means necessary, I'm going to get this done. Stefan, we talked about Bishop Sycamore when this whole thing went down, but life happens. You forget the details. You know, it's been a couple of years, et cetera, and so forth. But after watching this 90-minute documentary and spending a lot of time listening to Roy Johnson, I don't think I'm going to forget this story or that guy for a good long while. No, I was actually kind of creeped out and a little scared by the very end of the film. Um, because you just got the sense that this guy's going to find his way back. This is a guy that has, you know, 19 lives or 29 lives. This is one of the great scam artists that you've ever seen openly declare that he's a scam artist in a documentary that millions of people are probably going to end up watching. Um, I've, have you seen someone, Joel, with as little remorse as Roy Johnson? At the end of this film, he says that he followed the rules, the system sucks, Bishop Sycamore is just a name, this concept isn't going anywhere, I may be coming back and doing this again. And he wants us to forget that he bounced checks for hotels where these students, these kids were put up. He stiffed people on equipment bills. He took out fraudulent PPP loans in the names of players, and he's got a criminal record, an arrest record, as long as my arm. This was just You didn't mention amazing... that he ran over geese with his car. Oh, I thought we would get to that at some point. <laughs> well, you later. said it was an accident. It was an accident. Either he gassed his car to hit them, or he did it by accident. At least weird. going forward, it was an accident. When he backed up and ran the geese over again, I don't think that was an accident. <laughs> yeah, um, so I'm trying to figure out, I thought about this all night after I watched it, and I was trying to decide if I wanted to talk about this. Um, first of all, the, the, my opening point is, why were people so impressed with Roy Johnson? Like, I didn't, I actually did not understand the charm. I didn't understand, like, why people were drawn to him at all, because he's not kind, he's not nice. Like, he's a good talker. Like, he can, if you, if he keeps talking... And you listen to him long enough and maybe you're not, you know, a details oriented person. Like maybe you can fall under his sway. But this is not an impressive person by any stretch of the imagine, uh, imagination. And this is what I wanted to say that, that was sort of controversial. A slick, articulate black man can fuck a lot of people up because I think that's the soft bigotry of lowered expectations because they're like, oh, well, he's a good talker, blah, blah, blah. You know, you just come, he's charming. And I'm like, I didn't see any of that shit, man. Like, I don't know 
what he was selling. And I think it's it's shocking to me in football where you're dealing with all sorts of people all the time. People, they know to sort of be cynical about people's intentions. Like even up to the top head coaches in the game, like whether it's Urban Meyer or whatever, people are just sort of like, well, does this person care about me? Do they really care about my future? Are they really trying to do what's best for me? And that nobody saw this coming uh, at the beginning, like people that, that operate in that world, it's just sort of surprising to me because I'm not looking at the world's greatest, you know, con artist here. I'm looking at a guy that was a con artist, but I didn't see anything about him that made him so impressive that he was able to pull this off. This is a black iconing other black people, though, Joel. Does that, how does that figure into your analysis? Well, I think that, that that's a great question. Um, some of them were black, right? But I think that, you know, getting people to arrange football games for you, setting up games with IMG, um, you know, being able to talk people into giving you hotel rooms on credit, uh, even though that's a part of it. But just like the, the fact that he was able to do it over and over again and nobody sort of looked into it. And people, you know, even the, the directors of the film were like, oh, you know, he's sort of a charming guy. And they, I remember they said, we set the documentary up for people to sort of lure, get lured in by the charm and then unveil him as this terrible person. But as it's starting out, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not seeing the piece of it that made him charming in the first place. But you're right. And, and Bomani makes this, Bomani Jones um, is one of the commentators in the documentary. He makes this point. The reason that he was able to get away to, with it was because he was doing it to black kids. But the idea that anybody ever thought that he was worth following in the first place is sort of where I'm sort of, I'm puzzled um, how he had the appeal that he did. Well, Joel, you see, I wrote a book about a lady who conned a lot of people over a yes. long period of time. Yes. Uh, and <laughs> what I discovered in my years of reporting for The Queen, no, um, I, I will cut the act. So as some might know, given my uh, relentless promotion of it uh, on this, the show, I wrote a book called The Queen about this woman, Linda Taylor. Her story was the kind of origin myth of the welfare queen stereotype in the 1970s. She scammed the government uh, out of welfare money, but she also uh, was a kidnapper. She also was a murderer. She did all kinds of crazy stuff. And part of the the premise of the book is that she got punished, cast, castigated, became uh, this national villain for the least of her crimes. And I'm not trying to say that Roy Johnson was kind of on that level as uh, somebody who did things to the degree that Linda Taylor did, but as somebody who spent a very long time studying a con artist and what she did and how she did it, I do think there are some similarities. She's definitely worse than this guy. But I will say that the, the similarities are that she wasn't actually good at conning people. Like, her cons were bad. She just was hmm. audacious. And you can get away with a lot in this country if you just try, honestly. <laughs> yeah. And if you get caught, if you're willing to change your name or change the name of your school, as he did. Mm -hmm. Like, there are ways that if you don't care about your reputation, if you don't care about authority, if you're willing to, you know, try to find loopholes or bend rules, there's a lot that you can get away with um, in this country. And with her too, you know, the welfare fraud thing that she ended up getting sent to prison for, that was the thing that got attention because it was easy to demagogue and because, um, you know, Reagan and, you know, white journalists kind of flagged it as like, oh, this is like a crime against taxpayers. But she was doing 
things to poor black people for her whole life, you know, stealing from them, et cetera, and so forth. And nobody cared or paid any attention to it. And so I, I think there's a similarity there, too. In your experience reporting on that story, and this is, you know, stuff, and you, you, you know, I, I was sort of curious about this. Aren't you surprised that nobody wants to kill him? You know, I mean, I just kind of feel like he's taking advantage of people in such a way, in such a vulnerable part of their life, and taking money, taking opportunities from people, and is remorseless about it. Usually, you don't get to move like that forever. You know what I mean? Like, eventually, you run into somebody that is wants to that, that wants to to put it into it, like really put it into it. Like, did anybody ever feel that way about Linda Taylor? That's a good question. I think that um, another similarity would be that, especially the players, you get the sense that. They've had so much bad stuff happen to them in their lives. Maybe mm-hmm. not this kind of dramatic and this much in the public eye. They're just like, you know, this shit again. Like, we believed in this guy. It's more just like feeling defeated and like, I believed in this person, maybe against my better judgment. But like, that's the thing. He took advantage of kids who didn't have other opportunities, who'd failed out of school, right. who needed film to try to get a D1 scholarship. And I didn't get a sense, I don't know if you did, Joel, about how good these players actually were. Because I think there was some talent, but no great sense. But so maybe they were deluded about, you know, thinking they even had the potential, even in the best of circumstances, to get a D1 scholarship. But yeah, I think that's one of the sad things here, Stefan, and you can take it from here. It's just like, yeah, I think they're just so beaten down that it's just like, all right, I guess I, I guess this hap- this happened and got to move on with my life. I mean, the kids, the players, were the most sympathetic figures in this documentary for clear and obvious reasons. A, they were unbelievably reflective um, and clear-eyed about what had happened to them. And it was so sad to hear them talk about what happened to them. And it was also really sad to hear them talk about how they knew what was happening to them as it was happening, but they felt powerless to stop it. Um, Nobody stopped it. At one point during this film, I wrote in my notes, in all caps, still not clear how this happened. How did he get the equipment? (laughs) How did they travel? How did he get hotels? How did these kids get fed? I mean, we learned a little bit of that. They were forced to steal to get food at one point. And the rotisserie Um, chicken scam. And the rotisserie chicken (laughs) scam where he calls the Publix or whatever and orders 25 rotisserie chickens in the morning and then doesn't pick them up and knows that at the end of the day they're going to discount them to $2. Um, But it's almost like Johnson is just one step ahead of everybody, and he's preying on the vanity and the hopes and the fears and the expectations and the dreams of these players and their families. I mean, these kids are in touch with their with parents who are interviewed in this documentary who let them stay, let them continue Mm -hmm. to be you know, held under Johnson and the other coaches in this scam. Right. Well, I mean, they're taking advantage of people's naivete and their desperation, right? And I think, so Roy and Bishop Sycamore are clear villains, but they're also easy ones. And I was kind of thinking about this, and I've been thinking about it since the Bishop Sycamore stuff, about like what the bigger story here. And I think it's like a few things. One the gradual deregulation of education. Because I, I, even just driving around Houston, I'll see like these schools, you know, charter schools or schools that get public funding that are not quite public schools or whatever, or people that start up schools now. Like, I, I don't, maybe, you know, I'm 
45 years old. I don't remember people just starting. You know, you could start a school now in a way that you were not able to used to do. Maybe it was a, it could be a private school. But if you could start a school with public funding and just sort of have charter schools or whatever, like I feel like that's a big piece of it. There's the loss of local media because the guy that worked for OSHA the, or the, the OSSHA, the, the governing agency in Ohio, uh, that covers all this stuff. Like they interviewed this investigator for OHSAA, the governing agency for Ohio high school sports in the documentary. And as they're interviewing him, I'm like, oh, I know who this guy is. He would have been the local high school sports reporter at the Columbus Dispatch or whatever, or, you know, you know whatever. Like, you know, 30 years ago, Bishop Sycamore may have never, may have not been able to get off the ground or play more than a few games because people would have been like, what the hell is this school? What are they doing? And then you get to the sense that, like, there's just nothing that can be done. Like, Roy Johnson is telling you, I'm probably going to do this again. And it's like, we don't have, like, local government or whatever or... Or, or effective agencies that can sort of put a stop to this sort of fraud. So I think it's just... Because yeah, this is completely unregulated yeah, territory, r- right? right. He set, this, they set up a, quote, private non-chartered academy, right. which flew under the radar of state law and state high school regulations. We've retreated from the public square. And Correct. in the middle of this, people like Roy Johnson have taken advantage of it. And I think that, like, he's an easy villain, but it's like the, the deregulation of all this stuff is a big, is a big part of this as well. So the the directors, Martin Desmond Rowe and Trayvon Freed, they won an Oscar for uh, a short that they made about um, police killings of black uh, people in America. Very accomplished filmmakers. I thought they did a really um, good job. They talked about how they structured the film such that they wanted Johnson to seem at least a little bit sympathetic in the beginning. And then you just, as you kind of go on the accusations get more serious and he just starts to sound more and more insane. I thought that worked. And it's just as a filmmaker, as a writer, you guys know, like to get this much access to someone at the center of a story like this, who's not um, a sympathetic figure and to get them to talk at this length, it's really rare. And I think in this case, because Johnson is, whether you want to say sociopathic, egomaniacal, like, I think he thought he could kind of talk around anything, and you get him to say things like, I'm not a con man, I'm con man-ish, I'm the most honest liar I know. I mean, like, (laughs) this is like some of the most incredible statements ever committed to film. But, um, you know, Joel, it made me think about where in sort of an an era in terms of sports documentaries of extreme abundance, but uncertain quality, I would say. And a lot of it is because a lot of the docs that get made are because they're executive produced by the person who's, you know, like the Johnny Manziel story, which, you know, I didn't watch, but like, there's a lot of stuff that gets left out of that. Um, and you wonder, like, why is that? Or why is it? Why is this here? Why is it not here? So just to see a sports documentary by, like, serious filmmakers with um, the person at the center being involved, but, like, not being an executive producer on the project or, you know, not having creative control over it is kind of refreshing. Uh, can I d- just push back a little bit on that? Josh, before Joel, you respond, 
because the original story in The Hollywood Reporter announcing this documentary, which was uh, co-produced by Michael Strahan and a company called SMAC Entertainment, um, noted that they were psyched to get Johnson's full cooperation. One of the producers said to secure the rights to Roy's story as the head coach of the Bishop Sycamore High School football team that has gone viral and made national headlines is incredible, especially as it plays out in real time. Um, We learned this month that According to documents in a court case, Johnson was not paid directly for his participation in the HBO documentary, though one of the production companies involved in the project, SMAC Entertainment, acquired the rights to his life story in 2021 Mm. in connection with another scripted Mm -hmm. project. So Mm. Johnson was probably getting something here for his cooperation, is my guess. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's changing mores around whether or not people who participate in these stories should get paid or not, right? And I feel like there was a conversation about this related to another documentary recently, and I cannot remember the name of it, but... Also around the blind side. There you go. It was the blind side. There you go. And then I'm also like the Swamp Kings and stuff, like getting Urban Meyer to sit down, for instance, and people were skeptical of how how much was left out of that. So... Um, it's kind of hard to do these things now without getting people to, you know, you do have to acquire people's life rights to do this sort of stuff, as we know. So I, I think that's a fair criticism, Stefan, but I do also think it is so rare to do something critical in sports journalism anymore, mm-hmm. right? Like to get people to to, to write any, ne- I guess to the extent that this is a negative story, this is a very negative story. And to get the cooperation of the people involved. Um, there's like investigations and, and then there's like features yeah. and... To have something intersect, I think you're right, is kind of right. Rare. But as as journalists, when these guys sat down with Roy Johnson, um, they were on the one hand thinking, "This is amazing. Look at him talk." Mm-hmm. From Johnson's perspective, he probably viewed it as, "Oh man, this is great publicity for me." It wasn't he says like he that was at the end of the movie. Like he's, he wasn't yeah, he a reluctant he participant. Yeah. He wasn't a reluctant participant in this venture. He views this as a way to further his reputation and to get his name out there for whatever he does next. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that like, it. I mean, I guess the issue is like, are there people out there that are naive enough, um, ignorant enough, and I don't mean ignorant in a, with a negative connotation, but just like literally ignorant it's enough to trust them with kids again. And I, I, Dave Bliss got a job coaching again in basketball. And I, for people that don't know Dave Bliss, he was at the center of the Baylor basketball scandal in 2003 where one of the teammates killed another one and they found out that he'd done all this stuff in the program or whatever. Uh, and he still got the coach again for years afterwards. So I don't think that Roy Johnson's career is over, but I just... <laughs> it. The desire for people to make it to the league in any professional sport is so powerful. And that need is going to be met by somebody out there. And uh, unfortunately, Roy Johnson has quickly identified, I can figure out a few suckers who think that they can do it and and take advantage of them. And that's just, that's just really sad. It's like Bomani Jones says in the doc, Josh, that the black players, black athletes are a commodity. They're the biggest prize and the least respected people in the process. There's always going to be a market to exploit them. 
And to that end, I, you know, I covered IMG when it first opened, before it, it fielded its first football team, and Chris Winkie was the head coach down there. And the greatness of the program is sort of oversold. Like, there are these great five-star athletes, and we heard, like, Cardell Tate and all these other people that are, you know, college stars now. Um, but the thing about IMG is that a lot of the players on those teams are being sold a dream as well. Like, we're talking about guys that are going to play college football in Mexico and stuff like that. Right. Um, so, so even at that level, there's just a lot of, like, hey, man, you might have a chance. You never know. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, IMG is, is, is at the forefront of this trend, Prime Prep. It would be interesting to see if we got a documentary on Prime Prep because a lot of the same stuff was going on there. Um, so, yeah, man, I, I'm glad that this documentary happened. There are some fair criticisms of, you know, Roy Johnson's participation in it. But at the whole, I'm glad they uncovered this ugly mess to see how the players are so vulnerable because it's not it's not just Roy Johnson out there that, that sees these opportunities as well. All right, just a heads up that Joel will be out for this next segment. And Stefan and I will be speaking with Simra Hunter about Spain, the Women's World Cup team, and the scandal that's threatening to take down the head of the Spanish Federation. Days ago in Sydney, Spain's women's national soccer team won its first World Cup. As we record this on Monday morning, the team basically doesn't exist anymore. 81 players, including all 23 World Cup champions, said they wouldn't play as long as the team's current leadership remains in place. And its entire coaching staff, except for the embattled head coach, Jorge Vilda, quit en masse. The reason for the action? The repulsive behavior of the president of Spain's football federation, Luis Rubiales. In the aftermath of the national team's win, Rubiales, among other gross acts, forcibly grabbed and kissed Spanish striker Jennifer Hermoso on the mouth. By the end of the week, Rubiales had been suspended by FIFA for 90 days, but as we're talking, he is defiantly and kind of insanely clinging to his job. And Hermoso has become the sympathetic center of a global campaign against chauvinism and abuse in women's sports. Joining us now from Barcelona is Semra Hunter. She is a presenter for Spanish football on various networks. Semra, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you so very much for having me. The Spanish Federation is holding an emergency meeting later Monday, so there could be further developments. Meanwhile, the story took a turn for the weird with reports that Rubiales' mother had locked herself in a church and gone on a hunger strike that will continue, she said, until the end of the, quote, inhuman, bloodthirsty witch hunt which my son is being subjected to, end quote. Semra, this has been a crazy week. What has it been? like in Spain? Um, I think crazy and insane were two words that you used there. I think they're a pretty apt description of how this whole thing has unfolded. It's been surreal. It's been mind-boggling. It's been embarrassing, shameful. Um, so many people are very, very angry with the whole scenario from the very beginning. And there's a lot of layers to this anger. Um, and I suppose we could start with the fact that this has really come out and proven to be just the tip of the iceberg in many ways. And I think what people are most upset about is that 
yes, this is very much an act of, of, of sexual aggression, according to the law. If there is no consent, and there's a law that was put into place last year, it's called On the Yes is Yes, where it very clearly states that in the absence of consent, it is considered a crime. So that has people very outraged um, because Jenny Hermoso has repeatedly insisted that there was absolutely no consent. It was completely um, unsolicited. But the other thing is that this is just an example of the established pattern of behavior that men like Luis Rubiales, as well as others in the Federation, have been exhibiting for many, many, many years. This is not a one-off incident. This has been happening behind closed doors, in the shadows, but is very much real. And these women, the players themselves, have been openly talking about this for years now, and not just talking about it. They have filed actual reports to the correct authorities and governing bodies to try and have something happen, but it's always just been swept under the rug. So there is very much this feeling of anger in the sense that people close to Rubiales, people close to the Federation who have worked with them, they have been saying all along, this is what this person is like. And they feel as though so much of this could have been avoided to begin with had due diligence been done when it was supposed to be done. And the systemic setup of abuse and misogynistic treatment and sexism within the Federation and how they treat these women if it was properly dealt with as these women have been speaking out against for so very long. They've always talked about a toxic culture. They've always talked about being manipulated, about being silenced, about being humiliated. Um, and, and really that they never felt safe, some of them, to actually go and represent Spain because there just was a very messed up culture, to put it politically correct, I guess, in a way. Um, and so even Vero Boquete, who's a legend of Spanish football here, this morning, once again, she was out speaking to the media and said, this culture that I was, um, that I had to put up with when, during my playing days is still very much present today within the Federation. So it's not just Luis Rubiales. It goes so much deeper than that. Yeah. And when the 15 players sent a letter um, before the World Cup, long before the World Cup, right. there were specific accusations that were dealt with kind of the opposite that um, you, yep. had, you had hoped that they would be dealt with, with recriminations, with um, counter accusations. And the thing that um, has changed now, I think, is that this behavior by Rubiales was on video. And exactly. wh whether it was the general public who would be sympathetic or people who understand now that the culture has been exposed and think, all right, maybe to save my own job, um, I should kind of tack to the left here. That's kind of where I wanted to go next, which was we've talked before um, the World Cup victory about how Vilda and Rubiales are kind of a, a matched set, about how the players were yes. complaining about both of them and how they were in Correct. lockstep together. And one of the more interesting things I've seen is that Vilda is now coming out and saying, oh, Rubiales, this guy has gone too far. We need to nonsense. get him out. So yeah, Absolute say, say more about that. I don't believe a word of it. And I agree with you. He's just trying to save himself because people have been calling for his head as well. People want a proper clear out of the Federation. The first two they want gone are Luis Rubiales and Jorge Vilda. And part of the reason, just to go back to specifics of what you were just referring to with the 15 players last year, they claim 
that there was very much a culture of control where he would, for example, force them to leave their hotel doors unlocked so he could come in and check on them, so to speak, or he would go through their, their, their bags. It created a lot of anxiety and stress, according to what these women have reported. And so they said to the Federation, listen, we want to be taken more seriously. We want a professionalized atmosphere. We are not asking necessarily for the coach and the coaching staff to go. We just want changes to be made. So we're treated in the same regard as the men. And they spoke very clearly about their emotional and their, and their mental well-being and how it was being affected by all of this. But you're absolutely right. The Federation came out, took a private matter, made it very public they made themselves look ridiculous because they were so shameful in the way that they spoke to this to these women via the statement. They referred to them as capricious little girls. They accused them of being blackmailers and basically said, you can't come back to the national team until you apologize. And they very much took the stance of supporting Vilda. He was made to be stronger than ever and untouchable. So you're absolutely right. The whole way throughout this World Cup, and I think that's why the context here is really important too. The whole way through the World Cup, every time there's been a press conference or, or Rubiales has spoken to the Spanish media, it's always this mentality of us versus them. And it's, you know, look at us, we're achieving everything great and, you know, us versus them. And, you know, those women who don't want to be here and blah, blah, blah. I mean, he, he obviously spoke well of those that were there. But it was always this idea of like almost creating a sense of a war in a way. So I think when they did win, here is a man, I'll come back to this later on, but here is a man who has evaded so many different controversies and scandals. He's gotten away with everything scot-free that it's made him feel as though he is invincible. It's like Icarus. He got so arrogant, he's flown way too close to the sun and now he's been burned. But he's never thought that he would ever get in trouble because he never has. He's never and, had to and pay isn't for that, his actions. Summer, isn't that really a reflection, and I think this is what part of the story is, on mm. Spanish society? I mean, and I think we saw that in the last week. The speech that Rubiales delivered on Friday in which he repeated, I will not resign, I will not resign, I will not resign, indicated this blindness toward the way that he was completely that he and the federation were perceived i mean th this is um a sort of classic demonstration of mm. male arrogance this belief that he was right and he is willing to say these things and had no perspective that the rest of the world uh, let alone the players that he was in charge of the women might view what he was saying as arrogant and mm. as backward and as counterproductive to the the success and future of the sport. He made himself and other men to be the victims of this decades-long maltreatment of yes. women soccer players in Spain. And that's the craziest thing is that when you continue to see the behavior of the Federation in the last week, how they've doubled down in protecting and backing the president and insisting that his version of the story is correct and she's lying, it feels like they're trying to pull the wool over our eyes. It feels like gaslighting. It feels like bullying. The way that they're saying, well, we're going to take you to court. We're going to take legal action against a play. Wait a minute. You're the federation that's supposed to be protecting these women. That's supposed to be promoting these women to help them to achieve success. The fact that they even did so is just incredible in and of itself, considering everything that they've been up against. And 
it's just, it's, it's so disheartening and it's so sad and it's so heartbreaking because you're absolutely right. People are labeling him as completely deluded because he lives in a complete other type of reality. And the problem is the people in the assembly, uh, members of the Federation were right there applauding him along and they're just as, as guilty. They're, they're culpable of behaving in the same way. They're enablers. And that's probably why he feels as though he can act in such an entitled manner. And so it has had this spillover effect into wider society where now we're having a huge debate. I mean, this is wall-to-wall coverage for the last eight days, anywhere you look on Spanish media, whether it's television, uh, written press, social media, whatever. Everyone is talking about this from a societal and cultural point of view. And now they're referring to it as the Me Too moment of Spanish football because sexism, misogyny, uh, sexual violence, sexual abuse, call it what you will, it definitely exists in Spain and it has existed in Spain. It's been a problem for a very long time. And even though there have been voices trying to raise concerns, a lot of the times they, they're put into positions where they're shamed back into silence. So there hasn't been a support system really set up enough so for people to want to come forward and talk about it and feel safe about it. But now there is so much overwhelming support that you have everyone now saying, right, we do need to take a good hard look at ourselves because there are very overt and, and very uh, subtle forms of these kinds of behaviors that are very prevalent across the board throughout Spanish society and have been going unchecked for a very long time. So we do have a, a moment where we're seeing a, a transformation, I think, of society in a good way. And I hope that it lasts. I hope it's sustainable and that the momentum continues. But you do see people who before would have supported Rubiales have actually come out, admitted their mistakes and said they just didn't understand because I think there was just a lack of an awareness and a lack of consciousness around this whole thing. That now people are willing to listen, they're willing to learn, they're willing to admit their mistakes and actually say, yeah, we need to do better here. We need yeah. to check ourselves. So you're from the U.S. and you've been following the sport here as well. And I think back on the 99 World Cup and how the women from that team became icons, not just of sports, but for women, for girls. And the team at that point took on this role. And there's been some tension there as well, where they weren't just athletes. They um, became symbols and also used that opportunity for you know generations now to speak up for social causes. I also think of what happened with um, the English women after the Euros and how they kind of shot into the stratosphere in terms of um, their uh, position in society, their ability to speak on issues and just their fame. And so I'm wondering now, um, Hermoso, Puteas, Bomati, but also the women who weren't on the team, um, what kind of position do they have um, in society right now in terms of their level of fame, their willingness of people to listen to them? And has there been a reconsideration of maybe some of the players who were left off in terms of, yeah, we're going to listen to them now as well? Without a doubt. And I think what's so ironic about all of this is that Rubiales has probably without, well, definitely without meaning to, but inadvertently he's become an agent for change. And now these women are being looked at like social justice icons, as symbols of, of a feminist movement, of equality between men's and women's rights, and the fight for justice, not just in football, but in, in the wider scope of things here. I also wonder so if now, it's brought unity to the players in a way, because there was dissension between the Barca mm. 
and Madrid players and in terms of players who signed the letter or didn't sign the letter? Has this also right. brought the players together in a sense? At least publicly, it seems to be the case. Obviously, we don't really know what's going on behind the scenes, but they have all spoken out. They obviously signed that document, 81 of them, um, both current players, all 23 who won the World Cup, plus previous players from the past. They all signed a document saying we are not going back to represent Spain until the leadership is removed. So they have come together in that sense. And a lot of them are now speaking out, especially on Twitter, Pretty much all of them put a message of support saying they stand with Jenny, that they were going to be by her side and basically be there for her for whatever she needed. So you do get that sense that they are, are coming together and they are perhaps kind of pushing aside or letting aside the, the discrepancies and the fights and everything else that was going on in the lead up to all of this, because this is something so much bigger now. It, it's, it's so transcendental it's gone beyond just football and there are, there really are much more important elements i think of this story that are it's it's about values isn't it it's about values and morals and ethics as well and that's really what they seem to be agreeing on that is is the most important thing right now and it does feel like the scope of the response here has been so overwhelming that it is going to force change. I mean, the just on social media alone, but also on playing fields and elsewhere, you've seen male players, men's teams, uh, Cadiz players held up a giant banner reading, Todos Somos Jenny, we are all Jenny. Um, players in the, the National Women's Soccer League in the United States all wore, arm, all wore wristbands saying, Contigo Jenny. Uh, the hashtag that's trending on Twitter, Se Acabo, it's over. Um, or enough is enough. Um, and you, you see this reversal, as you mentioned, from, from male coaches who had been applauding Rubiales in his speech on Friday, including the national team coach of Spain, turning around over the weekend and condemning his behavior. Um, this is really a, a sort of a stunning level of support. Um, the breadth and depth of it is just overwhelming and that it could not trickle down and, and, and force some change in Spanish society would be, would be shocking and, and in Spanish sports. But you still have elements defending Rubiales and trying to, as you mentioned earlier, shut down the Spanish Federation in UEFA um, out of, you know, in this defensive posture. Um, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in the next few hours, but I would be shocked to see this continue, but you never know. I would be shocked for it not to continue. <laughs> I mean, I mean to see Rubiales continue, really? Oh, I, but here's the thing, right? Like, there, there's so much politicking going on behind the scenes here. It's almost very difficult to really know what it is they're going to do and how they're going to act and behave. Let's remember that the, the territorial presidents, which make up the, the federation, and also, by the way, I think out of 140 of the members, six of them are women. So it's a huge majority of men who are very supportive of Rubiales because he was the one who, coincidentally, four days before re-election, gave them all a pay rise to 150k a year. So they're big fans of him. They're big supporters of him. And again, if this systemic wide abuse has been in place, this culture has been in place for so long then obviously for them to support him is, is it's normalized. They see this kind of behavior as normalized. So I would be very surprised if they decided to let him go because the stance up until now has been to back him fervently. So the only reason why maybe they would is because they're afraid of losing their own jobs, of, of being pushed out. 
it's so crazy right now that it's it's almost it's almost impossible to really predict what's going to happen because there have been so many twists and turns to this. Maybe one of the crazier elements to all of this, and as I said before, there are a lot of deep layers to this. And one of the the very strong theories that have been put out by by Spanish media. This is this is not my opinion necessarily, but there is such a long list of scandals behind him. There's been a case of a woman filing a police report for physical assault. Uh, there was a woman, Tamara Ramos, who was speaking to the media earlier this week where she was talking about working with him and that experience and how he humiliated her on a regular basis, how he used to ask her what color her underwear was, what, that she only showed up just to get down on her knees and he would do this in front of other senior members of the men's national team. There's his uncle, who used to work with him at the Federation, who actually also filed a report against him and made very serious allegations of fraudulent activity, of him stealing Federation money to pay for orgies or to pay for trips to New York. I mean, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And the, the worst one of all is that the Spanish... I mean, this is common knowledge, is public knowledge here in Spain, and the media have been talking about this ad nauseum, why they think that he hasn't been pushed out until now is that reportedly, allegedly, again, innocent till proven guilty, this hasn't necessarily been investigated fully and an outcome hasn't been determined, but he has been alleged of having private recordings of senior members in the government, including the president, including the president of the CSD, which is the High Court of Sport for Spain. So in other words, he has leverage which is why he's been able to get away with so much for so long, which is why so many people are so upset that this could have been avoided altogether had things been done properly when they should have been done. We're shocked, shocked to learn that international football is corrupt at its highest level. I know, right? <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> Samra Hunter is a presenter for Spanish football on several television networks. Samra, thank you so much for coming on the show with us. My pleasure. Thanks again for having me. And now it is time for After Balls, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says, it was okay. My favorite sports event wrapped up on Sunday with El Segundo, California, defeating Curacao 6-5 on a walk-off homer in the bottom of the sixth to win the Little League World Series in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. For me, though, the tournament started with the team representing D.C. nearly making it to Williamsport for the first time ever. Alas, like Curacao, D.C. lost on a walk-off homer, falling to media Pennsylvania, 2-0 in seven innings in the Mid-Atlantic regional title game. A few days after that game, the Washington Post published a story by Frederick Kunkel about a raft of cheating allegations against the longtime president of Northwest Little League, the league that won the D.C. title and competed for a spot in Williamsport. Uh-oh. The accusations were made in a 46-page quasi-legal brief written by two lawyers who sit on the league's board, which is pretty on the nose for D.C., of course. 
the document claims that the head of Northwest Little League, who also coaches a U-12 team and assembles and coaches the U-12 All-Star team that competes for a spot in the Mid-Atlantic Regional, routinely ignored Little League eligibility rules, poached players from other D.C. leagues, made up scouting reports to downgrade one player so he could draft him for his team, manipulated paperwork, and lied to parents and board members about a lot of stuff. The league president denied any wrongdoing, but I read the 46-page memo, and it's a pretty compelling dossier, quoting emails, records, and interviews. It's also the sort of youth sports shenanigans that make your eyes roll and also bleed and make you feel sorry for the kids who are manipulated by over-invested adults, make you wish for an end to all-star teams and travel leagues. I mean, the guy, the president of the league, is accused of creating phony low tryout scores for a kid from another D.C. league so that he could draft him in a later round to stack his regular season team. Burn the whole damn system down. Anyway, every little league is full of jerkwad administrators, coaches, and parents. Maybe even the one from World Series winner El Segundo, California. But let's focus on the kids and celebrate the title game hero, six foot one inch, 12 year old third baseman, Lewis Lappy, who mashed the championship winning dinger on Sunday. Lappy went 10 for 18 with five home runs in Williamsport and was also lights out on the mound, proving once again that the team with the six foot one kid always wins. Josh, what's your Lewis Lappy? One year, 1955 connection, Little League. Yes. Tune in on Thursday. The FIBA Basketball World Cup is underway in the Philippines, Japan, and Indonesia. There have already been some major upsets, most notably France, uh, which won the silver medal at the Tokyo Olympics and beat the U.S. in the quarterfinals of the 2019 World Cup, lost to Latvia, and has already been eliminated from medal contention. And Greece, Stefan, did not upset the United States. Not even close. Oh. 109, 109 to 81 U.S. If Giannis had played, it would have been 110, 109. Just saying. What about the, the Shaq guy, the Greek Shaq? Is he, is he, is he, he still? Shaq. You love the I Greek, Greek Shaq, Joel. Is he still playing? Okay. A, a generation, <laughs> a generation did either, ago. Did either Antetokounmpo, did any of the Antetokounmpo brothers play? Let's check the box score here. Looks like Thanasi played and scored two points. Anyway, what I am going to discuss is not Greece. Well, maybe I'll discuss Greece a little bit. But um, there are a bunch of players at the FIBA World Cup who you might be surprised are there. One of them is Jordan Clarkson, not a member of the United States team. His mother is of Filipino descent, and he is currently playing for the Philippines national team. There's also Kyle Anderson, whose great-grandfather was Chinese and who is now playing for China. And then Thomas Walkup of Pasadena, Texas, and Stephen F. Austin, who is now starring for the Greek national team, having become a naturalized Greek citizen after playing for the storied club, Stefan. Panathinaikos. No, the other one. Olympiakos. Yes, since 2021. And also Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, who played at Arizona and for the Nets in the NBA and recently became a naturalized citizen of which nation? Jordan, everyone, Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. I was going to go Bahamas or something. Jordan? Wow. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, so we're starting to get kind of obscure there, but don't worry. We're just getting started. I got a tip from a listener, Michael Fields, who went down a very deep rabbit hole recently, one that will take us beyond the FIBA World Cup and into the outer reaches of international basketball. He writes, 
I was looking at some Olympic qualifier scores and happened to come across the Syria-Bahrain game. I noticed a B. Peterson, not an especially Syrian-sounding name. So Michael looked him up, discovered that this guy is named Brandon Peterson, and then I'll let Michael take it from here. He is from Birmingham, played college basketball at Arkansas State. He plays in Jordan now. And I figure the Syrian team tries to raid players from nearby countries, maybe from particularly friendly club teams. A little bizarre, but not super out of the ordinary. That's when things get more wild. Turns out just a couple of months ago, Peterson played for the Cambodian national team. What? (laughs) (laughs) What Michael discovered is that Cambodia went on a kind of naturalization spree before this spring's Southeast Asian Games. So FIBA limits national teams to one naturalized player per game. So if Thomas Walkup is, you know, Greek today, then there can't be any other naturalized players on the Greece team. So that's the FIBA rule. That's the rule at the World Cup. Southeast Asian Games, no such rules. And so Cambodia's roster for the 3 by 3 and 5-on-5 basketball tournaments included the following players. Darren Dorsey of Dakota Wesleyan, Saeed Alkabir Pridget of the University of Montana, Dwayne Morgan of UNLV, Darius Henderson of UMass Lowell, and our friend Brandon Peterson of Arkansas State. I got those names from a story in the Philippine Star headlined Mercenaries in Cambodia. So yes, Cambodia's rivals were not pleased, but neither were some Cambodian players. A homegrown player named Joshua Bo Nuong, who didn't make the team, said on Instagram, they resort to this for immediate success, but they have to understand the pride in representing the people of Cambodia all around the world. Losing is part of learning to become better. Winning without integrity isn't winning. Cambodia's coach, Harry Savaya, he wasn't having it, though. He said, they are Cambodians who bring honor to the nation, and we are playing by the rules. Cambodia did bring honor to the nation in 3 by 3 winning gold, but they lost out in 5-on-5 to the Philippines. The leading scorer for the Philippines in that game, Justin Brownlee, who grew up in Florida and went to St. John's, who was made a natural naturalized citizen of, of the Philippines in 2023, thanks to a bill signed into law by the president of the Philippines, Bong Bong Marcos. Brownlee, the hero of the Southeast Asia Games for the Philippines, is not at the FIBA World Cup. Now we're going to come for full circle. Remember, the official FIBA rules only allow teams to carry one naturalized player. So who does the Philippines have on their roster for the World Cup? Jordan Clarkson. He gets slotted in. Justin Brownlee is out. But don't worry. I saw a video. Justin Brownlee says he wishes the team the best of luck, which they are definitely going to need after losing their first two games to Angola and the Dominican Republic. Dominican Republic starring a man that Joel mentioned earlier in the podcast, Carl Anthony Towns. Wow. Really? (laughs) Oh, man. He's playing for them? Yep. They're 32. I, I I guess this was the same in 2019. There are 32 teams in the basketball World Cup. I guess because I'm used to like watching the Olympics and stuff. Right. I don't think of it as like having as many teams as the soccer World Cup. And there are not as many teams in the world that are good as good at basketball as there are at, at soccer. So you get um some kind of unexpected teams, which is great. But then you also get, I guess, the opportunity for the Thomas Walkups of the world to get their game on for Greece. Thomas Walkup of Pasadena, Texas, which I'm very familiar with. Didn't know there was a lot of Greek presence <laughs> in Pasadena, Texas. I got to be honest. Well, that was fascinating. And I got to tell you, you know when I realized that none of this shit made any sense? When Akeem Olajuwon played for the Dream Team in 1996. 
Because, I mean, Akeem was, like, known as, like, the Nigerian export, right? Like, he was the biggest Nigerian export in basketball. I mean, still is uh, to this point. And he's playing for, like, the American team. It was like, that seems kind of, like, overkill. They didn't, I don't think the Americans needed uh, didn't he become a point. Didn't he become a citizen? Am I remembering that right? He did, but I just, I'm just like, yo, like if you're not going to play for the country of your home birth, I'm just like, what's kind of the point? I kind of thought that's how the Olympics were governed. And then, you know, became a lot more cynical about how they go about doing these things. I just think Akeem Olajuwon loves America, and I think it's a beautiful story. But the big story... And that's why why he lives in Jordan half of the year, by the way. But that's true. Okay. (laughs) The big story for 2024, Stefan, and Paris is, so Victor Wimbanyama didn't play for France because he's getting ready for the NBA season and has played like and a ridiculous amount of basketball the last 12 months. But the big free agent in international basketball is Joel Embiid. Yeah. He could play for France. He could play for um, Cameroon. I mm-hmm. guess he could play for the United States. I think he's being recruited by the U.S. as well. Yep. Wow. Carl Anthony Towns leading the Dominican Republic 24-11 and 11 to upset Italy after beating the Philippines in the first game. Are the, Domin- are the Dominicans undefeated? Looks like they are. Yeah. I believe they are. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So thank you to Michael Fields. Great uh, listener email. And, you know, it's impressive rabbit holing when your email contains the phrase, happened to come across the Syria-Bahrain game. So all, <laughs> all, all props to him. That is our show for... Wait, wait, wait. Jordan, Jordan Clarkson was ejected in the Philippines 87-81 lost to the Dominican Republic. Wow. Letting the Philippines down, the whole country, Josh. That is our show for Mm. today. That is our show for today. (laughs) Our producer is Kevin Bendis. Listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out. Go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com and don't forget to subscribe to the show and to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty and thanks for listening. 